welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Wednesday, February 24th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 44. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We create informative content about a variety of topics, including organic agriculture, composting, seed saving, herbalism, permaculture strategies, and more. So if you enjoy this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com slash polyculture. Today, we're going to be talking about the permaculture design principle of zones and sectors. Zones are a key design tool that we use in permaculture as part of the decision-making matrix. A decision-making matrix is a way to weigh different strategies across certain sets of criteria in order to help you make rational and logical decisions that benefit your time and health. Zones are defined areas that radiate outward from a central point, what is called zone zero. Zones are particularly concerned with how human activity interacts with the environment around us, efficiency of movement, and a reduction of unnecessary human effort. In practical terms, this means that you position your various site elements, such as gardens, trees, chicken coop, etc., on your site according to your need and use for them. The greater the need or use, the closer we place it to zone zero. The great thing about zones is that they're flexible and scalable to any site. Zone planning helps you conceptualize how often you need to use something and how often you need to maintain something. By using zones and sectors, you'll learn to be efficient with your energy planning, and this determines the placement of elements such as trees, gardens, animal housing and pasture, structures, buildings, and other goals you may have on your site. Let's review the permaculture tenets and principles. Simply put, permaculture is the act of observing what nature is already doing on its own, and using that information along with a few basic design tools to reach your end goals. The three core tenets of permaculture are One, care for the earth, because without a healthy earth, no life here can flourish. We should be centering the earth before our own needs in many ways. Two, care for the people. Provision for all people to access those resources that are necessary for their shared existence. This should center decolonization, freedom of movement, and equitable disbursement of resources generated from your permaculture space. And three, fair share. Each of us should take no more than what we need before we reinvest the surplus. This helps both earth and people. So by assessing our own needs, we can set resources and time aside to further the above principles. Always close loops and ensure that you return waste back into the system. There are 12 permaculture design principles articulated by David Holmgren in his book Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability. I'll briefly list them here, but you can listen to a more in-depth explanation of them in episode 24, Farming with Permaculture. Number one, observe and interact. Two, catch and store energy. Three, obtain a yield. Four, apply self-regulation and accept feedback. Five, use and value renewable resources and services. Six, produce no waste. 7. Design from patterns to details. 8. Integrate rather than segregate. 9. Use small and slow solutions. 10. Use and value diversity. 11. 
use edges and value the marginal. And 12, creatively use and respond to change. Permaculture zones are useful for a number of reasons. They're useful during the organizing phase of your design implementation, but they're also useful as a management tool. Zones are all about positioning elements in your design system in order to benefit you and the ecology at large. The closer an element is to your center of human activity, or zone zero, the more likely it is to receive needed care and attention regularly. Zones are useful for imagining the relationship between spatial relationships, energy use, and time. In order to plan your permaculture zones, you need to think about core factors such as distance from zone zero, which translates into time, and the frequency and duration of which you visit this area. There are six permaculture zones. Zone zero is the nexus of human activity, typically a dwelling. Zone one is as close to zone zero as possible. Time input is characterized by high frequency and duration. Zone two is the next distance outwards where you have moderate frequency and duration in this area. Zone three is when the distance from zone zero is a major factor, although time input may vary. Zone four is the distance from zero being a major factor and low frequency but high duration is characterized by this zone. And lastly, zone five is a wild zone where human intervention is ideally zero. So I'll go into detail about each of these zones later in the podcast. You're probably wondering which elements will share the same zones and if there are any limits to zone size. Design elements which share interactions with one another tend to be in the same zone and outer zones tend to be larger than inner ones. You can think about zones as spanning all the way from the built environment, like your house, for example, to the wilderness, completely absent of human intervention. So as you move further from the built environment, your available time and energy decreases. So systems that are rather self-sustaining are usually located outside of zones zero or one. You can ask yourself, will this function with or without human input? And that can usually help you decide where your design element should be in your system. Remember that zones can and should change over time. Responding to change is essential when designing permaculture zones. At the end of the day, zones are just abstract conceptual boundaries. They aren't necessarily defined by fences or other hard structures on your property. Their boundaries can blend together, and although diagrams tend to draw the zones as circular, radiating outwards from zone zero, they can be any shape that works for the accessibility of your site. In contrast with zone planning, sector planning acknowledges the external energies interacting with our site, such as forces of nature that pass through it. These energies include winter and summer sun angles, hot summer winds, cold winter winds, salty or damaging winds, water flow and flood prone areas, unwanted views or avoiding surrounding industry, and fire danger areas. So we want to strategically plan elements in our design to manage or take advantage of these incoming energies. By placing plants, trees, or structures in the right positions, we can block the incoming energy, channel the incoming energy for our intended use, or open a closed area to allow the incoming energy in. So let's discuss each approach to sector planning. Let's discuss each approach to sector planning. Blocking incoming energy. 
Sometimes external energy creates problems in our system, so we need to block its flow. If your site has hot summer winds, cold winter winds, salty seaside breezes, or dusty winds, these are all examples that you may want to restrict to some degree on your site. You can do this through creating wind breaks, which may utilize weather-tolerant plants or trees, or other built protective structures. You'll also want to map sunshine in winter and summer so that you can learn how to manage the midday and afternoon summer sun, south and west sun in the northern hemisphere, or north and west sun in the southern hemisphere. Deciduous trees are of particular use where their leaves block out the summer sun but fall during the winter, so sun shines through to warm the house naturally. Fire breaks may also be indicated by placing elements which do not burn. Think of roads, cleared areas, stony ground, concrete areas, stone walls, ponds, marshes, or waterways. You can also plant fire-resistant tree species and vegetation in this area to act as a shelter belt, such as European deciduous fruit and shade trees like oak, elm, willows, poplars, figs, mulberries, mirror bush, aspen, and cottonwood. You may also want to block incoming energy in the form of removing unwanted views or pollutants. Trees, plants, and structures can be erected to provide privacy and block out unwanted views. Mycelial mats and other buffers can be employed to filter contaminants from entering your site from upstream sources. In other areas, you may want to channel incoming energy for your own uses. In nature, there are constantly sources of free-flowing energy coming into our site. Water flowing into your site as rain or as ground runoff can be redirected into lakes, ponds, irrigation channels, and other water management systems. You can also use wetter areas to grow plants that like this environment and that will help you manage the excess water. In permaculture, we always say that water maintains its greatest potential when elevated, storing potential energy with it. Gravity then does the rest, allowing the flow of water to perform work, such as water supply or irrigation. Water flowing through streams and rivers can be used to generate electricity through the use of hydroelectric generators. Wind can serve similar power generation purposes by moving wind turbines or windmills. And sunlight can be harnessed to warm water, generate solar power, dehydrate foods, and other uses. Other areas may simply need to be opened to incoming energy. This is done through clearing or thinning existing vegetation. For example, you might not need to relocate your whole garden, and instead you can just trim certain branches to increase productivity of the garden space. We may also choose to modify existing structures in order to create beautiful views from our zone zero structure. In order to map the sectors, you'll need to make a sector diagram. Start from zone zero and draw out wedges, like a pie chart, around your site design to draw in these external forces that you've identified through observation. You may wanna mark things like the winter and summer sun, dominant wind patterns, and other external energies. This should give you a good idea about how to manage these energies throughout the different seasons on your site. Zone planning and sector planning together will cover the majority of energy inside and flowing through your site. Just to give you an idea of generally the sizes of different zones, zone one is ideally around 1,000 square meters or a quarter acre in size for a family of four. 
Now this size is manageable as an intensive food production system. So all vegetables required can be grown in an area of 50 square meters per person. Zone two is ideally around 4,000 square meters or one acre in size for a family. Zone three can range from four to 20 acres for a family. Zone four can be any size and zone five is a wilderness zone used for hunting and gathering. Now I'll take some time to go through each of the six permaculture zones and provide examples for you to be able to envision what each zone can be. These general parameters can be used for customizing zones on your own site. Zone zero. This refers to the core of your permaculture-based system. This can refer to a residence, a workplace, a gathering place, or another kind of dwelling. Zone zero functions as a shelter, a place to sleep, prepare, eat, and preserve food, use the bathroom, store important things, and to have small gatherings. Zone zero does not necessarily have to be the center of your site. However, it often helps reduce travel time across your site to have it in a central place. Consider the energy inputs in your zone zero, such as clean water, electricity, garbage, internet, or cellular. You need to make decisions about whether you will provide for your zone zero needs yourself or if you'll rely on an outside source or some combination of both. If you have a solar, wind, or other renewable power source, the batteries are usually located in zone zero. Zone zero often benefits from an outdoor overhang or greenhouse patio space to reduce time spent indoors. Zone one is the outdoor area immediately surrounding zone zero. Zone one is linked to the needs of people living in zone zero and their daily activities. It can be characterized as needing frequent maintenance or visits from people. For this reason, we consider zone one to be a human ecology or one that does not exist in nature and would transform without human attention. Zone one can include your kitchen and herb garden, small sheet mulch beds, vertical gardens, container gardens, small fruit trees, and berry bushes. Zone one may also include workshops, gazebos, shade cloth, rainwater tanks, wells, fuel sheds or for firewood, polytunnels, fire pits, and other structures. Most plants here will need human management, and about 70% of vegetation should be annual plants. Zone one is also an ideal place for small fowl, such as quail, chickens, or rabbits, and even vermicompost worm bins. For those interested in aquaponics, zone one may also be able to accommodate your operation. Choosing whether or not your design element belongs in zone one or two will depend on your scale. For example, a family keeping five chickens will keep their chickens in zone one, whereas a market farmer raising 200 chickens will need their chickens to run on pasture in zone two. If you're new to permaculture zones, use zone one to experiment, trial, and grow in confidence with your permaculture design skills before extending into the landscape beyond. Start thinking about the soil and water quality in your zone one and focus on improving the health of both those systems. If you are on an urban property, most all of your site will be zone zero and one. Many permaculture experts recommend properly designing out zone one before moving on to outfit your other zones. Zone two is a really important zone because it has the potential of the highest yield per land area. It is closely integrated with zones one and zero. Zone two can be characterized by its distance from zone zero. It's a place that's visited often 
and where you may spend a great amount of time, but it needs slightly less daily attention or moderate frequency than the first zone. You may only visit zone two every few days. Systems in zone two are a little bit more resilient, self-sustaining, and wild. A forest garden or orchard is indicated for this zone, as are vegetable rows, berry and other fruit trees, and space for domestic animals of small to medium size. Larger compost bins, beehives, ponds with ducks, and other animal enclosures work well in this space. Structures also work in zone two, such as sheds and barns. When assessing zone two, look at the soil quality and water patterns first, and then survey current vegetation. Sometimes sheet mulching is indicated, but sometimes the area is too large, in which case mulching around trees may be used. Zone two irrigation systems like drip systems are frequently used as well. Zone two is best suited to having 70% of its plants be perennials and semi-hardy species for your particular climate. You may also want to integrate systems like food forests, chicken rotational grazing yards, and intercropping with staple food gardens in this area. Windbreak species of trees may also be indicated along the borders of zone two to protect your inner zone crops. Electric fences are common in this area to fence in small animals, and the edge of zone two to zone three is about two minutes walking distance from your zone zero structure. Think of zone three as a buffer edge between the intensive cultivated systems on your site and the wild self-managed systems. Time input may vary significantly depending on what you choose to put in your zone three, but typically it's not visited more than once a week. For example, grazing areas may need to be visited daily, but only for short periods of time before the animals go to spend their day to themselves. Similarly, your fruit trees may not need to be tended to all year, but you may spend extended periods of time with them during their harvest season. So consider the existing vegetation first and look at the distribution of plants and trees there. What do they tell you about the health of your zone three? Zone three should be dominated by native plant species for your climate, but may include orchards of larger trees. And sometimes seasonal crops like wheat, rice, pumpkin, and bamboo are grown in the pastures of zone three. Animals may also forage underneath the trees, such as oak and nut. Instead of applying mulch, plant native ground covers and nitrogen-fixing plants at the base of your trees and leave them unpruned. Urban farmers may consider their larger surroundings to be their zone three, such as urban fruit trees, rose hips, nuts, dandelions, and others. In mountainous or hilly areas, zone three may utilize key point lines, allowing you to harvest fresh water through gravitational force. Zone three is a great place to practice agroforestry, and this helps you develop more windbreaks to protect your crops against the wind. Zone four should be dedicated to your fellow ecosystem actors, and you wanna use the space to put in a minimal amount of effort while still bringing beneficial change to your ecosystem. This zone is located for wild food and herb gathering, planting mushroom plugs to harvest culinary or medicinal mushrooms, grow trees for wood or fuel, and other self-seeding trees preferred for your climate. It's another good rotational pasture for your grazing areas, but otherwise wild animal species dominate zone four. Earthworks such as berms, swales, and key line dams may also be built in zone four, as well as campsites or a yurt. Any trees you plant in zone four should be hardy and well-suited to your climate. 
Don't plant invasives in zone 4, where they can proliferate unchecked by your infrequent presence and spread by wild animals and wind. And lastly, we're going to talk about zone 5. This is your wild zone, where human intervention is ideally zero. The most you should take from this area is information. Think of it as nature's classroom. Unfortunately, rarely will you find a zone 5 that is completely untouched by human impact. So monitoring the health of wild systems in zone 5 will help alert you to disease or other ecosystem issues. Sometimes you'll need to manage zone 5 to reduce the risk of serious harm, such as fire, pollution, drought, or other natural disaster. The last design concern for zones and sectors is slope. Even seemingly flat places have uneven ground with slopes, hills, and valleys. So you need to take into account the contour of the land and how it accounts for the flow of energy on your site. Gravity, of course, moves things from high points to low points, and we can capitalize off of that gravitational force to make our systems as efficient as possible. Because of this gravitational force, slope affects water flowing from high to low. You'll want to position water storage tanks or dams uphill so that gravity can supply pressure without needing a pump. If you have roof areas used for rainwater harvesting, keep those uphill from your house to provide fresh water. Gravel pits with plants growing in them can be used to filter wastewater downhill from your house. Wastewater from kitchens, showers, sinks, and laundry can be directed to an orchard downhill from the house. Materials should also be situated from high areas to low ones in order to use less energy. Locate access roads uphill from the house to make bringing materials back to the house easier. Grow your timber uphill as well. Heat and warm air rises, whereas cold air sinks and flows downward. Dams and bodies of water should be placed downhill in order to reflect heat and thermal mass. Heating up the day and releasing the heat upwards on the slope at night. Tall trees can be placed on a slope to retain heat and to help warm the incoming cold night air that flows down from the slope. These forested slopes also help control soil erosion on your site. When water runs downhill, it will carve gullies and wash away soil in the process. You want trees and other vegetation to absorb the flow of water and create a buffer between the soil and the water which causes erosion. You may also want to contour your site by building trenches and swales to slow down the direct flow of water. Try to build your pathways to run along the contours of your site and not downhill on your slope, which creates a significant opportunity for soil erosion on your pathway. Fences should also follow contours to prevent their breakdown from water movement. Fires run from downhill areas up a slope. These are called upslope fires, and the steeper the slope, the higher the risk because the angle of the slope allows it to dry the material uphill, making it more flammable and the updraft effect where hot air rises fast and the fire pulls in more oxygen-rich air from the lower downhill areas to feed it. So the more that feeds it, the hotter that it gets and the worse that the burn is. The worst place to build a house or a site in a fire danger zone is on a sharp ridge or hilltop because the house is exposed on all sides to threat of fire. Another dangerous place is the side of a hill that is sheltered from the wind because as wind blows over the top of the hill, it creates a low pressure area on the sheltered side, 
creating a lot of air movement and causing a fire cyclone, which may burn directly over the house. For these reasons, houses should be built away from the tops of hills or ridges, on downslope plateaus, and if located on a hillside, they must be built into a shelf, a flat area far back from the edge to protect from this radiant heat event. The shelf should ideally include a water feature, such as a pond or a fire break. Generally, you want the aspect of the slopes on your site to face the sun, so the site is able to receive the maximum amount of sunlight. So why might we want to use permaculture zones? These guidelines are an excellent tool for both planning your new site or managing your existing site. It's appropriate to now revisit your zone diagram. Determine the rough zones within your site to optimize the energy flow, and then analyze your sectors to account for all the outside energies moving through your site. Finally, assess the slope and sun angle. Then think about the distances that are practical for you to cover on a human scale and the amount of space required to yield a harvest to support a given number of people. If you account for all of these, you have a potentially successful design in terms of energy efficiency. Remember that zones take into account human energy use and flows within your system in order to reduce unnecessary wasted energy. Analyzing your zone system is about understanding the frequented patterns of human movement so that your design elements can be placed where they are naturally going to thrive and so that you can easily tend to them when need be. I think understanding the zones allows you to understand how elements relate to one another and how to make life easier for yourself. So zones are something I'll be using on every site I cultivate in the future because the flow of energy is just too important to be doing that wrong. Although zone planning can't account for all systems of energy that may interact uh, on your site, they definitely will help us think of our land not as property with specific boundaries, but as part of the larger ecology and environment where elements of nature are constantly interacting with our space. This system is by no means perfect, but it is sensible by simply putting things that you need often close by and things that you need less often further away. I also think the zone planning really lends itself to more intentional communities and more village-style neighborhoods, which employ permaculture principles of communal space and frequent social gathering. So I see zone systems as beneficial for both human communities and ecological communities that we inhabit this earth alongside. So I hope that this episode was able to break down some permaculture zones and how you might use them on your site, no matter how large or small. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please like, subscribe, and comment. Let me know how I'm doing. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We're bringing you information on backyard food production and sustainable living on small plots and in urban areas. So if you like this content, please go and support us by going to www.patreon.com polyculture. This concludes episode 44 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night. Thank you.